This is a tale of common threads throughout small worlds. Welcome to American Esoterica. If history class gives you the American History Podcast, this is the excessive mention of the Lincolns, the essential stuff in between, the personalities, events, and other ephemera that shape our history and culture. I'm Brian Powers. From the start, I want to note that early on, I'm going to talk about the brutal relationship between enslaved folks and the people who purported to own them as property, and at least a few of the abusive forms it took. Elizabeth Hobbs Keckley was born into slavery around 1818, the product of a union forced on her mother, Agnes Hobbs, by her enslaver, a particularly cruel man named Colonel Amistad Burwell. When she was in her early teens, Burwell eventually sent Elizabeth to live with his equally awful son and daughter-in-law. They, in turn, sent her to work for a neighbor, who forced himself on her over a period of years, who forced himself on her over a period of years, resulting in a son, George. Shortly after the baby was born, Elizabeth, George, and her mother, Agnes, were taken to live with Burwell's daughter, Anne, and her husband, Hugh Garland. The Garlands moved the household to St. Louis, but didn't have much money, so they considered hiring Agnes out to make them some. Terrified that her mother would be unable to handle that kind of work, Elizabeth begged them to let her come up with a way to make up the extra income. Agnes had been a seamstress for the Burwells, and she had taught Elizabeth well. Elizabeth took her skills to the public, designing fashionable, well-made dresses for the wealthy. Her reputation spread, and soon she was in demand throughout St. Louis high society. She couldn't keep her earnings, though, turning them over to the Garlands, but she managed to support the entire 18-person household of her enslaver. It was exhausting and unfair work, and Elizabeth was nearing a breaking point. She outright asked her enslavers how much it would cost to buy her freedom. At first, they refused to answer and forbade her from raising the subject. But she pushed so hard that they finally named a number, $1,200, which would be more than $40,000 today. It was a nearly impossible sum, especially if she couldn't use any of her own earnings, which is probably why the Garlands suggested it. She had been afraid to marry, worried about bringing another child into this world, shackled and abused by slavery. But with a glimmer of freedom at hand, she consented to marry a suitor by the name of James Keckley. It was, sadly, not a fruitful marriage, as she found out that he was not a free man as he had insisted. With her hopes of bearing a child in freedom dashed and a marriage that she came to see as pointless, she turned instead toward raising the funds for her own freedom and that of her son. Of him, she wrote, Why should my son be held in slavery? I often asked myself. He came into the world through no will of mine, and yet... God only knows how I loved him. The Anglo-Saxon blood as well as the African flowed in his veins. The two currents commingled, one singing of freedom, the other silent and sullen with generations of despair. She continued, By the laws of God and nature, as interpreted by man, one half of my boy was free, and why should not this fair birthright of freedom remove the curse from the other half, raise it into the bright, joyous sunshine of liberty? 
Elizabeth toiled for still more years with no result, until her high society clients came together on her behalf. When a client heard of Elizabeth's plan to travel to New York City and ask abolitionists for help in raising money, she banded together with others to raise the funds, and in 1855, Elizabeth handed over the $1,200 to free herself and her son. She was finally free. But before she moved on, she worked for five years in St. Louis to pay back every single person who had donated to win her freedom. Such was her will and sense of fairness that she considered the money given to be a series of loans rather than gifts. Elizabeth then set out for Washington, D.C., where, despite some initial struggles, her network of wealthy clients paid off. Soon, she was working for the wife of a senator as her personal stylist. This was how Elizabeth came to hear of the stirrings of an oncoming war, which were discussed openly in front of her. As war loomed over the horizon, the senator and his family moved away, his wife trying to persuade Elizabeth to join her. Elizabeth declined, though, staying in D.C. As luck would have it, the new first lady, Mary Todd Lincoln, needed a dressmaker, and Elizabeth Keckley's reputation brought her to the White House, where she was hired the day after the inauguration of Mary's husband, Abraham. It would be the beginning of a strong and close friendship between the two women. The heartbreaking tragedies that drew them together were the twin losses of a child the same year. Elizabeth had enrolled George in Wilberforce College in Ohio when she left St. Louis, but he had joined up with the Union Army and died in his first battle in Missouri. Mary and Abraham lost their 11-year-old son, William, from typhoid fever, and Elizabeth had grown so close to the family that she had sat with the boy in his final days and helped to wash and dress him after he passed. Elizabeth, with Mary's support, reached new heights of success, at one point having 20 assistants to help with her work. Elizabeth used her hard-fought stature to create a charity that would help the formerly enslaved as they made the transition to freedom. Mary Todd Lincoln was one of the first to contribute, along with such notables as Frederick Douglass, and Elizabeth traveled with Mary to northern cities to drum up support. Elizabeth stayed in close contact with the Lincolns through their years in the White House. When Richmond fell, she joined them on an excursion to the fallen capital of the Confederacy. At one point, as she stood in the Capitol building itself among the broken desks and scattered papers of the fleeing Confederate Congress, she found a resolution that had been taken up to bar free black people from entering the state of Virginia. After the horrific assassination of her husband, Mary Lincoln sent for Elizabeth immediately, and the two women tried to cope with the new circumstances they found themselves in. Mary moved east to Chicago, and Elizabeth visited with her early on. When Mary began to suffer financially, Elizabeth helped her as best she could, traveling to New York to assist in an ill-advised scheme to sell off the First Lady's White House clothing. Their relationship began to fray, but hoping to cast her friend in a better public light, in 1868, Elizabeth published an autobiography, Behind the Scenes, or 30 Years a Slave and Four Years in the White House. The first chapters detail her life in bondage, while the remaining bulk of the book was devoted to a surprisingly intimate look at the Lincolns from an insider's perspective. The book set off a firestorm of criticism, mostly along the lines of anger at a free black woman giving the details of the lives of those in white society. It not only failed to sell, it ended her friendship with Mary Lincoln entirely. It also unfairly damaged Elizabeth's reputation, and her dressmaking slowly dwindled. For a time, she became the head of Wilberforce University's Department of Sewing and Domestic Science Arts in Ohio. She died in 1907 at age 89 in Washington, D.C. 
Elizabeth Keckley was born into slavery, but found herself a free woman whose prowess had brought her into the most powerful households in the nation. Yes, households. When the Civil War broke out, before her fateful introduction to Mary Todd Lincoln, Elizabeth had a choice to make. Stay in D.C. and the North, or leave with her current patron, Verena Davis, wife of then U.S. Senator Jefferson Davis. In Elizabeth's words, I preferred to cast my lot among the people of the North. For a time after the war, rumors swirled that Davis had been captured wearing a woman's dress to evade searchers. And even though it wasn't true, a traveling exhibition purported to show that very article of clothing on a wax mannequin of Davis. Elizabeth went to go see for herself. It was one of the very last two items she had made for Verena Davis before the war broke out. This has been American Esoterica. All sounds were made by me, Brian Powers. Did I get it wrong? Did I get it right? Just want to speculate how many episodes in a row I can go without mentioning Lincoln? Drop me a note. The address is yell at AmericanEsoterica.com. Thank you for listening, and God bless America. Thank you.